could turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is really full of rich theology and blessing, the revelation of God that describes how the Gospel comes to play out in our lives in really a day-to-day basis, how the Spirit of God comes to work in our lives and meets our needs. And we've talked about how God addresses every need of that we have, spiritually speaking. Sin has left us guilty before God and condemned. And so, He justifies us, pardons us, and declares us righteous for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That sin has corrupted and has enslaved us. And so, He gives us power from the Spirit of God to say no to sin, to turn from it. Sin has also marked us with shame. A sense of, uh, I don't belong or I'm, I'm dirty and I need to be covered and accepted. And the Gospel addresses the shame as well by the work of the Spirit to bring you assurance of God's favor. And, and that's what's being described in the passage we're going to read today. So before we read, we're going to pray and ask God's blessing. And then we'll read great words from Romans chapter 8. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray you would send your Spirit uh, about whom we will read and about his ministry we want to reflect. And we want him to come and, and accompany the reading of the Word, that he might make it powerful and effective in our hearts. We pray that the time we spent reflecting and, and applying these words that we're reading, uh, we pray that he would accompany that work as well and, and cause us to be changed, to be nourished, to be filled with the hope and the help of the Gospel. We do pray that you would be pleased to lift up Christ and lead us into deeper faith in Him, to lead us into more profound repentance, that you would cause your church to grow and to be healthy through your Word. We ask for this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen. In Romans chapter 8, I'm again reading in verse 14. This is God's Word. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope... We were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope 
For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He searches hearts and knows what, the mind of the, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, as God's Word is completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. Reuben Carter, uh, by the time he was 11, had already had at least one encounter with the police that led him to be uh, put into a, a home for boys run by the state. And the moment he could get out, he joined the military. Uh, that didn't suit him, though, much better. Uh, he didn't finish his enlistment, was given an undesirable discharge, and uh, went back to his home in New Jersey. There in New Jersey... He, sort, he resumed his life of sort of petty crimes, was uh, convicted of some of them, spent some time in prison. And finally when he got out in the early 60s, he started to make good on the one skill he learned in the military, which was boxing. He was very good. Uh, he was aggressive and had, had a, a real flurry when he came to punch with power. And so uh, he earned the nickname Hurricane, Reuben Hurricane Carter. He, he got to where he was so good in the middleweight divisions that he got his chance to fight against the champion, world champion middleweight. And he went the distance, uh, but didn't win, lost on a decision, and then his boxing skills began to fall off. Within a couple of years, he was out of boxing. He was living in New Jersey and driving around at 3 in the morning with a friend when the police stopped him. Across town in Lafayette Bar and Grill, two African-American men had burst in, opened fire with guns, killing three and wounding a fourth, then left in a white car. Eyewitnesses saw it and described it, and Carter's car fit the description. So they took Carter and his friend back, and the eyewitnesses that were on at the scene said he wasn't the one they saw. Well, a few days later... Alfred Bella, a man who had actually committed burglary that night with an accomplice, was walking by the Lafayette Bar and Grill, and though on the first night he said it wasn't Carter, later he said it was. The police said they found a 32 caliber bullet and an empty 12-gauge shotgun shell in Carter's car 45 minutes after they had arrested them, even though those things weren't entered into the uh, proper evidence at the police office until five days later. On the basis of those testimonies, uh, they went to court. Uh, Reuben Carter's defense lawyer secured people who had seen him at another bar at about the time of the shooting. They gave their testimony. And the jury had a, a real dilemma. Here was one man, Alfred Bella, who was saying, I saw him leaving and getting into the white car. Other testimonies said, we saw him somewhere else. And the jury had to decide who they would believe, and they chose to believe Alfred Bellow. They convicted Reuben Carter, and he was sentenced to two consecutive life terms. Seven years later, Alfred Bellow recanted his testimony while Carter was still in prison. In addition to that, uh, it came to light what the prosecution had promised Bellow, some favors in regard to his particular own petty criminal activity that they would sort of turn the other way about if he would give testimony. And that exculpatory evidence wasn't told to the defense lawyers. 
And so uh, a judge demanded that he, his conviction be overturned. They brought him to a new trial. Bellow returned his original testimony, and once again, the jury chose to believe Bellow over the other witnesses. He was sent back to prison. It was such a big deal that uh, Carter, who maintained his innocence, wrote his autobiography. It became uh, a big public uh, injustice. Bob Dylan wrote a song about it. Muhammad Ali spoke publicly. There were protests that he should be let go. In the early 80s, uh, a federal judge reviewed the case and declared that the evidence wasn't properly handled, that there wasn't enough evidence to convict him, and that he should be freed from his conviction. And after 18 years in prison, Reuben Hurricane Carter was released. He made it his life's work from then on to join the Alliance... Hang on, I wrote this down. The Alliance in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted. His life's work to help those who were convicted wrongly as he maintained he was. Uh, you, you may have seen the movie that Denzel Washington did, The Hurricane, where they told this story. Uh, it's, it's good. The story hinges, his experience hinges, on which witness the jury will believe. Do they believe Bellow or do they believe the others who gave alibis? And twice they believed Bellow. The federal judge would have you believe that that was the wrong thing to believe that it cost this man much of his life. What I want you to see is that at least in some sense, you and I are in the same place as those juries. There are two witnesses that are trying to get you to believe them, and you have a choice to make. Let me show you those witnesses. Look at Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set your mind on something is to listen to it and to follow it. That's what that means, to, to dwell upon and to follow that instruction. And so the flesh, the sinful nature, says, I have instructions, I have a witness for you, I have a way to describe life for you. And the Spirit says, and I have a way. And they're competing. And, you know, the federal judge in Reuben Carter's case says maybe Alfred Bellow was suspect in his testimony. He had something to gain from it. Paul tells you the motives of the two witnesses in your life. Verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You have this sinful flesh and its chief goal in life is hostility to God. Keep God out. And the result is death. The Spirit says, I want to bring God in and it's life and peace. And so the obvious wise thing to do is to listen to the Spirit. Who would choose death over life and peace? The problem is we are very accustomed to listening to that flesh. It's a voice we know. It's a voice that tells us often what we want to hear you want that illicit pleasure? Go ahead. It's good. You want to live for yourself? Go ahead. It's good. That's the testimony of the flesh. Do what feels good. It's okay. Do what feels, makes you feel good about yourself. Do this for yourself. It is okay and good. 
the Spirit comes along and says, I want you to think about something else. I want you to set your mind on something else. And you know which one is right. You know. The hard part is deciding to listen to the Spirit because we're so accustomed to listening to the flesh. It's what's habit for us. And so it takes a lot of effort to listen to the Spirit. What I want today is to tell you what the Spirit would have your mind on. I want to give you five points. I just looked at my clock. Uh, I'll be quick. Five points. Five things the Spirit would have you think about. And they all start with A, so it'll be easy to remember, hopefully. Five things. First, the Spirit wants you to think about adoption. Listen again to verse verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Adoption is this description that Paul used to describe your relationship to God. He has declared himself to be your father and has called you to be his sons. You belong to him and you belong to his family. And, and this is really revolutionary. When, as I mentioned before, Jesus prayed, My Father, people wanted to stone Him. This is, you don't see any of this really in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament that you see this. It's so central, though, that J.I. Packer says it this way. If you want to understand how much a person really gets the Gospel, ask him what he makes of having God as his Father. If he doesn't make much of it, he does not understand the New Testament religion at all. It is central to understanding all of the Bible and what Jesus has come to accomplish is to get that God is your Father, that you belong. And this is in opposition to how we feel because of our sins. Go back to the very, very first sin. When Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, what does it say happened first thing? The very, very first thing that happened to them when they took the fruit and ate it, it says, and their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked and they covered themselves up with fig leaves. You see, the first feeling of sin isn't guilt, it's shame. It's the sense that something is dirty and wrong about me and I need to cover it up. And I want to hide it. I need something to to shelter me because I don't belong anymore. Now here's what God says. You do belong with me. You can come into my house and be at home. You fit here. I'm accepting you as you are. Come into my house. That's the message of adoption. To, To put it in really concrete terms, there are exactly two houses in the world that I feel like I can walk in without knocking. One, I have the key for that house in my pocket. It's on Meadowview. The other is in East Tennessee where my mom lives. That's where I belong. It's my house. And God says, I want you to think of me that way. You're my child. You are welcome and accepted. Let's put this into, again, practical terms. Paul says, You didn't receive the spirit of slavery unto fear but you receive the spirit of adoption unto sonship. 
So there's the idea that the Spirit did not come to you in order to make you afraid of God or afraid of failure as a slave might be. He came to give you the security of one who is adopted. So let's compare those. We don't really have a ton of you know, slavery to compare. The closest we might get in our cultural experience is the employee-employer relationship, the business relationship. And here's how a business relationship works. You fulfill your end of the bargain and we have a relationship if I fulfill mine. And we do our things together and the relationship is completely conditional until one of us fails or until the job is done. Compare that to an adoption, sonship, family relationship. I'll bet most of you have said this at one time or another. Ugh, if that person weren't family, and probably that's been said about most of you. It's certainly been said about me. But you hear that implicit in that statement is that I'm bonded to this person unconditionally. It's family. It doesn't matter what happens. We're connected. And God says, you and I, we're family. So we're connected. Nothing severs that. If there's something wrong, we're going to work it out. The slave or the employee obeys the employer or the master because he must. It's under compulsion. It's under the threat of, of disaster. A child obeys too, right? And when children are very young, sometimes it's because of the threat. But as they get older, at least what you hope happens is that the child begins to trust and say, I know my parents have my best interest at heart, and so I'll obey, not because of what I'm afraid that they might do, but because I trust them, and they love me, and I love them back. At least that's the goal, right? That's not possible in the slave or employee relationship. There it's only out of compulsion, only out of the threat of wages. And if I do my part, I get paid. And if I don't, I don't. You see, a slave lives inherently in insecurity and fear, while a child lives in security and confidence. Now, this is not to say that a parent won't discipline, won't bring consequences to bear. You children, you guys know that, right? Many <laughs> other kids are like, yeah, you know. Parents bring consequences. Parents bring discipline. But the discipline is never trying to drive you away, children. Discipline is always to try to train you so that the relationship grows and flourishes. That's the way God is. He wants you to think about his, your relationship to Him that way. Not as one who lives in fear that what if I mess this up? But you live as one who God says, I am committed to you. And if there's a problem, we'll work it out. If there's something wrong in our relationship, I will train you until it's resolved. The Spirit wants you to think about adoption. I'm going to go much quicker now. I have to. Uh, the second A. If adoption is the first, and this is related, it's access. Listen again to what Paul says. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The idea of Abba, that's what a little baby first learns to say if they're Aramaic or Hebrew. 
That's, that's dada. You know, and, and, and what it's saying is not that you should call God some kind of super familiar term. You should go to Him in prayer and use daddy or something like that. The picture is that you learn to come to Him the same way a child learns to come to his father. Learns to say, All right, I know Him, He provides for me. I know Him, He takes care of me. I know Him, He picks me up when I'm crying. I know Him, He is Abba, Father. There's an intimacy, but really the idea is more dependence and running to Him. In, um, in parenting, we always want to see our children grow increasingly independent. It starts with them wanting to hold their own cup and drink without me holding it. And then it grows into, you know, I can put on my own seatbelt. I can do it, Daddy. And I can put on my shoes and I can take care of myself. And, and eventually, they even want to, you know, go to the movies by themselves. They want to drive. They want to go out. And that's what we think is good. But I doubt it. Now, obviously this isn't by experience, but I doubt that a child ever wants to get to the point where when something hurts, they don't want Daddy to listen. I doubt that a child ever gets to the point where they say, this is really frustrating, but I don't, I don't need, you know, I don't care if Dad listens or pays attention. I, I doubt that a child ever, I doubt that any of us have ever gotten to the point where if we were overwhelmed, we weren't willing to run to dad and say, help. And that's the picture that Paul has here, that the Spirit comes to you and says, you have access to God. Cry out the way a child who's just skinned his knee says, dad, help. In tears. You run to Abba Father with your tears, with your hurts, with your disappointments. When you're overwhelmed by the world or by sin, you run to Abba. And you cry out. That's the Spirit's ministry. He wants you to think about your adoption and your access. And He gives you assurance, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit sees His ministry to you as to give you confidence that the promises of God are true. That His favor is really on you. That you really have His mercy that you really are His child and that there's a confidence that's supposed to grow in you because of what the Spirit is doing. Now, I can give you some evidence. I can go through all the historical reasons why we trust the Bible as God's Word and why we think the resurrection is a real historical event and, and how we know God exists. I, I can do some of that stuff. And, and sometimes the Spirit uses those things to help. But it's the Spirit's work to give you faith and to strengthen it. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's a scene where a man's behind the wall blowing the bellows on a fire, causing the flame to go up. That's the Spirit of God who's inflaming your faith. And He uses the Word of God to, to do it. That's the way He works. And so, if, if you want assurance of your faith, if you want this confidence, you belong to God and you have access... Here's the first two steps. First, read your Bible. Read it because it's the, the words of the Scriptures that the Spirit gave to the apostles and the prophets that He means to use for your assurance. And the second thing is pray, Spirit of God, would you help me believe? The 
Spirit wants you to think about these things. Your adoption, your access to God, your assurance of His access. And then He wants to give you anticipation, hope. Look at verse 17. I, I would have used hope, but it didn't have an A. So, anticipation. Verse 17. If we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance that is ours provided. We suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. We go through the family likeness. Jesus came and suffered and we follow the same path. We won't take on a cross and we won't bear the sins of the world, but we act it out. We bear the suffering of this world. We bear the heartaches that we feel in the brokenness, but we do so always with the eye to glory that is ours. Now, what kind of glory makes suffering worth it? Listen to this, verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's strong words. Because I know some of you who have suffered. I've seen some of the suffering in your life. And if, if Paul is saying to you who have suffered, I know how bad it hurts and it's still not worth comparing. The glory that is coming as you get to know Christ, the joy that will come from being in His presence will reach back into this life and overwhelm it. It will be like a tsunami of glory. It washes back over all of your life. And it's as if it erases the pain so much that you're like, oh, okay, that, that was nothing. I can't even come up with a good illustration. It's Imagine your anticipation on Christmas morning as a kid. And when you wake up, everything you wanted, everything you had hoped for, it's all there waiting for you to unwrap. It's great, right? But it's, it's not enough to undo all that was broken. You, you anticipate the day that you're, you're getting married and it's great and glorious and you have a huge party as you get married, but it's not enough to reach back into life and undo what's broken. But the glory of knowing Christ is so powerful, so magnificent, that it will reach back into every pain you have felt and you will say oh that was nothing this is so great and if you get that listen to what he says I, I, I will jump ahead verse 25 if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience here's the application point if you can set your hope on that glory that's to come if you can really say what's coming is so much better than all that I must give up right now, it will give you endurance to give up whatever you must. It will give you endurance to feel the hurt and keep going and even to do it with patience. To feel the brokenness of our bodies, to feel the hurt of the sins done against us, to feel the pain of the struggle against sin in our own bodies and to say, this really hurts. It does. But there's a day coming when you will not just share in the sufferings of Christ, but in His resurrection and in His glory of being with the Father. And the last thing, 
your adoption, your access, your assurance, your anticipation, and your aid. I'd use help, but again, I need an aid. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What kind of weakness can He help us in? We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of God helps you when you pray. Now think about that for a second. Prayer, at really at one level, is just talking to God. And most of us have been talking, you know, all of our life. And so we're used to talking. But think about how hard it is to pray. I, I, I really, I don't remember a single time in my life where someone said, Pastor, I'm really quite pleased with my prayer life. Now maybe in a minute, as I'm standing out in the hallway, somebody will. I hope that's true. But, but I don't think I've ever met someone who thought, I'm really happy. Everyone I know struggles with prayer. We were at General Assembly, not this last, this last week, but the, actually last year at General Assembly. Karen and I went to, a conference, uh, to a, one of the seminars on prayer because I don't know what I'm doing. It's a little, just a little secret. I actually don't like praying in public. It's, uh, you know, I do it a lot, but I don't like it. I have trouble praying. And I thought, this is, this is exactly what I need. I'm glad they've got this. And so here are all these elders from the church gathered for general assembly, and they've come to this seminar on prayer. Teach us finally how to pray. And here's what the man does. Uh, he, is, is, um, he starts by saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. Paul Miller says, we're going to pray. Seminar on prayer. Let's pray for a few minutes. Uh, we're, I'm going to just let you guys pray, and I'll stop you in, in, in a little bit. So we start praying. Now, just so that you know, when I do that silent prayer time, we go about 30 seconds. When we were there at this conference and then sitting in the room, we went about 30 seconds, and I was doing fine 30 seconds. About 40 seconds in, 45 in, I start noticing the speaker next to me because it's one of those you know, movable walls, and I can hear him, so I'm listening in. And then I'm thinking about how, you know, stuff that's going to go on later that day and stuff that happened the night before and who I need to see. And then, I, you know, it's 8 o'clock in the morning and we're always staying up late at, at, at General Assembly, so I'm starting to get a little sleepy and just trying not to doze off. And that's all in the first minute. And he lets us go for at least five minutes. Now, five minutes of silence is a really long time. Let's see. No, I'm just kidding. It's a really long time. When he finally stops us, here are all these men who are leaders in their church, and he says, how'd this go? And to a man in the room, and woman, there were a couple of women in the room, to a person in the room, we were all saying the same stuff. I was distracted. I listened to these other things. Everything was going through my mind. I really wanted to quit about 10% into the time that we did this. And when he said, how did you feel about it? Here's what came up over and over and over again. We all felt guilty. Guilty. We were supposed to be the kind who can pray, and we couldn't pray. Now, here's what I want you to think about that. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we... We do not know what to pray for as we ought. This is the Apostle Paul. His prayers have been the subject of books. I don't know how to pray. And the Spirit helps me. 
And dear friend, you don't know how to pray, but the Spirit helps you. Now, if at this most fundamental, this very most fundamental level of spiritual life, we don't know what we're doing, but the Spirit helps us, don't you think He'll help you at every level? You have help from heaven. You have an aide who wants to get into your life and really turn it around. You have a Father in heaven who has adopted you, who's given you access to Him, who's given you assurance of His promises, who's given you an, an anticipation, a hope that is beyond your imagination, and He helps you right now at every moment as the Spirit of God takes what little we can offer that's weak and failing and He makes it fit for the King, your Father. Alright, so who are you going to believe? You're going to believe that witness who says, just look, live for yourself, you'll be fine. Or you believe the one who says, look how good it is in the home of the Father. The Spirit of God would have you think about your adoption, your access, your uh, assurance, your anticipation, and your aid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us dwell on these things of the Spirit. For in dwelling on the things of the Spirit, we're going to find life and peace. And I ask you to help us know our adoption and live in it. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.